Well, good morning again. Please turn with me in your copy of the scripture to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, the first part of which we just heard read. After some of Daniel 1 for context, of course. My man. Unfortunately, we weren't able to gather together last Sunday, and so I thought it would be wise to just give a brief recap of what has happened to get us to this point in chapter 2. And so you already heard some of it here. Nebuchadnezzar goes up against uh, Jerusalem. He takes away some of the vessels of the uh, sanctuary, excuse me, the uh, the temple, and he, and he brings them back and places it in the house of his own God there in Shinar, there in Babylon. And then he sends his chief eunuch, Ashpenaz, kind of the recruiter, to go get some of the top folks, the sharpest folks, the best-looking folks, part of the royal family, um, a bunch of people that he is to, to bring back. And the plan is that they are going to bring these people along in the way of the Chaldeans. They are going to be trained in the literature and the theology and the philosophy of Babylonia so that they can be the face of Babylon to their own people because you, you stand to influence much more if you are speaking to your own people. That was the plan. They were going to be educated for three years and then stand before the king. And then the story zooms in on four guys in particular. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who are renamed, and we talked about the significance of that, uh, given Babylonian names that it, it included uh, and uh, um, were, 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 uh, were, they were designated with Babylonian gods in mind. Excuse me. And so then you have this kind of meal plan at the Babylon University request for a change of plan. And so Daniel says, well, we're just not going to eat. And the chief, uh, the steward here says, well, that's not going to, it's not going to work because I can't have the king come in here and see, you know, you all looking like string beans and everyone else is, 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 you know, fat and happy because the air doesn't have calories. And in my head will be on the chopping block if that's the case. And I said that I approved that meal plan. Uh, but they, so he asks again and he says, well, instead of that, we're going to switch to vegetables. And uh, the, he, that gets approval. They get approval, and there was a test period, and at the end of the test period, they were better in appearance and fatter than everyone else. There's something clearly miraculous going on here. Switching to vegetables normally might be sufficient to help you lose a couple pounds in that time frame, 10 days, but certainly not to gain weight faster than people eating from the king's table, which was certainly a calorically enhanced table, particularly because it included the wine as well. God gives these four youths skill and wisdom in the literature. And Daniel particularly is given this special ability to understand dreams. And so when the time finally comes, the final exam, they stand before the king and they are ten times better than anyone else in all of Babylon. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, verse 20, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. 
And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. We talked about the significance of that as well. That's, that means that we're seeing like an, like an 80-year window. We see him into his ninth decade. This kingdom will pass, but Daniel will not. And that leads us to chapter 2. What are they going to do? They've graduated with honors here. What's going to happen? How are they going to use their position? How are they going to use their position? Let's walk through the story. The story begins, curtains open on scene one of act one. This is a six, I would say it's a six scene chapter. We're going to look at the first three, the first act, or the first three scenes uh, here in act one, and then we'll look at act two next time. But the, the, the kind of, the curtain opens and we see Nebuchadnezzar having a rough go at things. That's what he's having. It says that his spirit was troubled. He had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. So three things important. He was presumably sleeping, right? That's so in the night, which is going to contrast to Daniel's vision, by the way. That's why I just point that out. He wasn't daydreaming. He was sleeping. He had these dreams. The dreams, or at least one of them, presumably, I mean, he only gets one interpreted, it seems, but at least one of them was very, very troubling to his spirit, personally, deeply disturbing to him. And as a result, he's experiencing insomnia. And so baggy-eyed, anxious Nebuchadnezzar sets out to get relief. He sets out to get some relief. And so he calls in all the folks, all of them, the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans generally refer to the ethnic, essentially something like the Babylonians. But in this particular context, the way Daniel uses it, it refers to a particular class of wise men. That's why they're included right here particular class of wise men. So notice he's got the people who could potentially interpret the dream and the Chaldeans are going to take the charge here and doing the interpretation. But he's also assembled the sorcerers and enchanters so that once there is an interpretation of the dream, then there could be a spell or something on hand to make sure that things go well, to make sure that there could be a proper response. So the king announces that he had a troubling dream and he wants to know the dream. That's what he says in verse 3. And the Chaldeans say in verse 4, they say to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. So just two things. You might recall from last time that from chapter 2, verse 4, to the end of chapter 7, the text switches from Hebrew to the original language to Aramaic. I'm going to defer on why I think that is until later. But when you see right here that they began speaking in Aramaic in the English, that's where in the original language it actually switches over to Aramaic as well. The second thing is that we see see, uh, that they're asking what the dream was so that they could interpret it. What that means is Nebuchadnezzar did not tell them what his dream was. He's not just asking for interpretation. That's why you're going to see them act like they do. He's not there. Some commentators say, well, he forgot the dream. That's really hard to, I mean, because people forget dreams all the time. It's very difficult to square with the fact that he's going to evaluate the dream, the, the interpretation of what the dream was for accuracy or kill somebody. It seems like he certainly remembers the dream, but he is not telling these particular folks. 
But that paves the way for these impossible terms that he sets out. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans here, these folks taking the charge, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream, one, and its interpretation, two. Twofold task. And the Chaldeans do what my children do, and they don't like my response. They just ask the same question again. They ask the same question again and hope it goes better the second time. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the, the dream. We'll show its interpretation. And the king is going to call them out for their stalling. He said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time. That's what he says. You can't do this. You're stalling. I got you. And now you heard the word that I gave. I know what you're doing. I know with certainty you're trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time changes. He doesn't seem to want to, he doesn't want to tell them the dream. It's not clear that he trusts them to actually deliver. He trusts them to potentially make up stuff till he's in a better mood or maybe another king comes along. Tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me the interpretation. That's what he says. If you tell me what I dreamed, then I'll buy your interpretation. But if I tell you the dream and you give me the interpretation, okay, I mean, I could make up an interpretation for it. How am I supposed to know that that's the interpretation? But if you, but if you show me the, what the dream is, then you'll kind of have some credibility and I'll list you. But I'm not going to tell you because I don't trust you because I think you're going to come here and make stuff up. The Chaldeans speak to the king for a third time, but they pivot here, realizing that they are going to need to take a different strategy. And regrettably for them, it is a strategy that makes things even worse. Even worse. So the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter, or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So notice here, he says, you're asking something impossible, but let me tell you why it's impossible. It's not like totally impossible, which is key for the rest of the way the narrative plays out. You're not asking something that's totally impossible. You're asking something that is impossible for the people who are in the flesh. Only the gods can do this. We're not of the gods. We're earthlings, fleshlings. You can't ask an earthling to do this thing. Do you see God around here in Nebuchadnezzar? No. And it's because of this that the king was angry and he was furious. Because of this, the king was very angry and furious and commanded 
all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. If that's not rash action, I don't know what is. He's losing it. We're going to come back to this in application though. This is the progression of fear and insecurity. He loses it. One theologian says this, when, when, pagan, when these pagan intellectuals casually reminded him that he and they were human and not gods, he flew into a rage and reacted in a way that is reminiscent of the words of Friedrich Nietzsche, who said, if there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? Nebuchadnezzar couldn't, and so in rage he issues this sentence and the decree goes out. And unfortunately, Daniel and his buddies don't escape the decree. They regrettably do not escape the decree. Verse 13, they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. But unlike Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel does not panic. At least we're given no indication that Daniel panics. He doesn't lash out. He doesn't collapse in grief. Instead, he exercises prudence and discretion or wisdom. And in this case, it looks simply like an effort to better understand the situation. How about that doesn't feel very profound, does it? That's what he does, though. He's trying to accurately understand the problem. That's what it is in verse 15. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? I just think that's the most interesting question. When I was reading through this, I was like, that's not the question I thought he was going to ask. I thought he was going to ask, why is the king trying to kill everybody? That's not what he asked. He's like, why, why are we on such a time frame? That's what he says. Why is this so urgent? Like, can we pump the brakes here? That's what he asks about. The king's extremely bizarre sense of urgency in bringing about a mass extermination, not necessarily why he was doing it, although Arioch is going to fill him in. Arioch, apparently knowing Daniel and his esteemed standing, tells him what's going on. He kind of gives him the time of day. says, listen, this is, this is what's up. And Daniel kind of books a slot with the king, as it were, as a result of hearing from Arioch. Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. And so this is the close of scene one, and we're thinking, oh no, oh no, wait, he doesn't realize he's not going to just be asked for an interpretation. He's going to be asked to do mind reading. He's toast. It's getting sent to the wolves. What will happen? What will happen? Scene one closes. We're wondering what is going to happen here. And the camera pans over to scene two. And that is the home of the exiles. Scene, scene two. Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. And told them to seek mercy from God, from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. So that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men 
of Babylon. Notice he, he tells them to, to pray for mercy from God concerning, and we get this word, mystery. Mystery. We're going to come back to it. Extremely important word. Extremely important word in Daniel chapter 2, and an extremely important word in the New Testament for a theology of mystery. We're going to talk about a little bit more. Notice the, the reason for seeking the mystery is not just to save his own skin. It's to save all of these other people as well. All of these other wise men, he says. We're not just doing this for ourselves. He's doing it for all the other wise men, and he knows that he has a witness and a testimony to give there in Babylon. So they, they pray, they go to sleep, and then something amazing happens. Verse 19, and then... The mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And we're going to get more night visions. You would usually expect like, well, isn't that like a, isn't that like a dream? A vision of the night? It's like, it, 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 it seems to be kind of pushing them together. But you see Daniel's vision of the night contrasted with Nebuchadnezzar's dream in the night. However you want to parse, parse it out precisely, the two are set against each other. One is going to lead to Nebuchadnezzar's confusion. One is going to lead to Daniel's clarity. They both had revelation in the night. God's with one man and not the other. They're set against each other in the narrative here. The mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And what a lot of people say is the center of chapter 2. Daniel's worship Listen to this response. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. What an incredible picture of God's knowledge, his sovereignty. God is the He's the season and the time changer. He's the king remover and the king installer. He's the hidden things revealer. He's the wisdom giver. So Daniel gives praise to God for these things. For giving him clarity in this mystery. Which we will see ends up being both the content and the interpretation, mercifully. But scene 2 ends with the astonishing verse 24. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and thus said to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Daniel commands the captain of the guard, who just received a command from the king of Babylon. And he's like, uh, okay. It's amazing. God is with this man. He is with this man. 
Because it's Daniel's time to put the glory of God on display. It's Daniel's time to put the glory of God on display. That leads us to the climactic end of Act 1. Act 1. Daniel before the king. Third scene. Arioch works you know, very quickly here in light of circumstances. And he rushes to the baggy-eyed, anxious, and now very angry Nebuchadnezzar. And he says to them, I have found, verse 25, among the exiles from Judah, a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. <laughs> it is funny. He takes a lot of credit for the find. Guess what I found? King. I know I'm your right-hand man for, for moments like this. Guess who I went and found? Of course, he takes credit for it. Daniel is going to correct that very quickly and deflect the glory back to God. But Ariok is, is, just, is just a man who's terrified of this king too, frankly. He'll take whatever he can get. And finally, once more, we hear on the lips of the king. We hear words, that is to say, on the lips of the king. And he makes very clear what he's asking there in verse 26. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And its interpretation. Daniel's answer starts out negatively, which is perhaps a bit of a rebuke for what Nebuchadnezzar was asking. But at the very least, a contrast to God and man. Then he kind of sets up this epic reply that everyone remembers after reading Daniel. Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery, second time, the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Those who do, what, what those who dwell in the flesh cannot do, my God can. Remember your wise men were saying only the gods can do this? Daniel showing up and saying that they were onto something. They got the number wrong, but they were on to something. He says it involves the latter days, which is something that's going to be critical as we continue to go through the book of Daniel. The mystery involves the latter days. It's going to refer to what happens after Nebuchadnezzar, culminating in a kingdom that will triumph over all kingdoms forever. That's what's going to happen in the latter days. Something that happens after Nebuchadnezzar... And then there's going to be a kingdom that triumphs over all the kingdoms forever. And when we get to the back half of Daniel, that's where this part is really going to come roaring back. Before Act 1, though, closes, he does give a bit of a teaser. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, verse 29, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be? So this is where I just want to talk one more time about this mystery. 
he says that God has made known to Nebuchadnezzar what is going to happen. And yet, he has made it known to him in a way that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't really know what to make of. You have to hold the two together because it says that right there. He's made, made this known to you. And someone might ask, well, if he's made it known, why is Nebuchadnezzar asking about it? Well, it was made known to him, but it was made known in a kind of way that was hidden that would have to be subsequently revealed for fuller understanding. And if that idea reminds you of the biblical concept of mystery that we discussed a while ago in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, when we talked about the mystery of lawlessness and a biblical theology of mystery, hidden but now revealed, declared but in a way that wasn't totally discernible but then fully unpacked later, that's because the vast majority of evangelical New Testament scholars believe that when Jesus, with the mysteries of the kingdom, and Paul, with the mystery language in, all, in his letters, when they use the word mystery, they are pulling from Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. And it takes this exact same element. There is something that is revealed, the mystery, but it's not revealed in a way to the, the original audience, in this case was Nebuchadnezzar, in a way that he could fully understand it. It was revealed genuinely, but in his case, not comprehensibly, and so it had to get unpacked, it had to get revealed. That is the mystery concept. We're going to see this over and over again, and we certainly see it in the New Testament. But Act 1 doesn't end there. In, because of what happened in Daniel's house, we read this to close. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me. Not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. The humility of Daniel is astonishing here. Daniel clearly has, objectively speaking, more wisdom than a lot of folks. In fact, chapter 1 said that ten, he was ten times wiser than everyone else who tried. And yet, here he is correcting Ariok's mistake. He is giving all of the glory to God. He is saying, God is the one who has done all this. It's not for me. And he's, he's done it so that you can know your thoughts because the, the God that I serve knows your thoughts better than you do. That's what he's saying. The God of the exiles who reveals mysteries knows the thoughts of kings better than they know them themselves. And then the curtain closes for intermission. End of Act 1. What on earth is Daniel about to say? What's the dream? What does it mean? Does it bode well or not so well for the king? I'll have to come back next time to get the next chapter of the story here, as it were. But certainly there's some important things that we can take away from our time together this morning in this text Last time we asked of the text what we can learn about the God-opposing world that seeks to shape followers of God. Because that world hadn't changed. Details have changed, substance of it hasn't. As we, looked at the as we look at the first act of chapter 2, though, I want to ask two other questions as part of responsible New Testament application that isn't just Veggie Tales uh, stuff. And that is, what can we learn about sinful man who requires redemption in Christ? What can we learn about God who provides redemption in Christ? 
The first thing I, I want to point out is that we see an incredible picture of the fruit of fear and insecurity. An incredible picture. How this progresses. What does this look like? By fear and insecurity, I mean to articulate what the text graphically describes. A man who despite incredible worldly success and being a cunning ruler at that, has absolutely no stability. He has nothing concrete to hope or trust in. So much so that he has a dream and he's losing his mind. For someone so mighty, he is simultaneously so fragile. And it would be nice if we could think, oh, I'm glad that there aren't people like Nebuchadnezzar around anymore. But let's see if this sounds familiar to anybody. Let's look at the dynamics of Nebuchadnezzar here. We look at the sinful man who needs redemption in Christ. Always tending to trust in the wrong things. Something, that's ha- something, something has happened that makes him feel anxious, fearful, uneasy. I'm not talking about waking up for no reason and having a heavy chest or having uh, uh, unexplained fight or flight uh, responses. That's not it. I'm talking about he wakes up in deep distress and anxiety because of something that happened that he didn't understand. He didn't fully have, he couldn't fully grasp. And now it's got him losing sleep and on edge. Notice that despite what we will learn, that there was a frightening image, Nebuchadnezzar takes step one out of the fear and insecurity playbook, and he assumes the worst. Presumably, he's assuming something bad, that it's bad about himself, not somebody else. He's troubled in his own spirit. He's not like benevolently troubled for a distant cousin who's somewhere. He's troubled. It's deeply disturbing to him. Which of course means, at least it sure would appear, that he thinks that the, this terrifying image, that we're in a, and that's what the dream is we're going to see, what, somehow concerns him. We don't know exactly what he thought. Maybe he thought, oh, it's my enemies, they're going to overtake me. I'm going to lose power. I'll go away in exile. But here's the thing, just spoiler alert, that's not what it is. It's not. His son rules after him. His kingdom's still there. He assumes the worst, though. Something horrible. Something horrible, and it doesn't correspond to what we see the dream will tease out. That doesn't matter, though. It doesn't matter. Because worriers are false prophets. Worriers are false prophets predicting the future with astonishingly low success rates while claiming heightened levels of discernment about potential outcomes. The reason I'm worried, and justifiably so, is because I understand all of these risks and dangers and other people don't have the discernment to see it. They don't realize it, but I do. And I know that this thing could happen. So I plan for a bunch of potential futures which rarely ever actually happen. And the one time they do, I say, I go, See? I knew I was going to get in a car wreck today after thinking I was every day for 20 years. It finally happened. I knew. I knew that my discernment was onto something. So what does he do? He assumes the worst. He has this angst, this fear of the unknown. He doesn't understand. So what does he do? He does whatever every fearful warrior does, not looking to the appropriate thing, 
or person, I should say, which is Christ, he does step two. He craves knowledge and information. More knowledge, more information. Why? Why? Because for the fearful worrier, knowledge represents power and control. It's something you could control. The more I know, the more I can control. The more I can shape up my own future. I can hedge up my fear through putting my hope in planning. That's where my trust is going to go, contingency planning. The more I know, the more I can prepare. But hey, even in the absence of being able to prepare, the more I know, it makes me, it makes me feel safe in my own thought life. Even if the knowledge is bad, it still helps me build my fort and stand against what might come. It's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar does. It's exactly what he does. What does this mean? Call all the people. Call all the folks. Bring them in. What does this mean? Get the sorcerers in place. So once we get a diagnosis, we can get a solution. I've got my knowledge. I'm hoping in my, my planning here. But what happens? He sets out to find more information that could potentially alleviate his incredible fear. And he is frustrated on multiple accounts. In fact, he cannot make the people and circumstances provide him what he wants. So much so that after he continues, he is actually told that he is irrational in what he is seeking to do to alleviate his fear. And how does that go? Not well, but it doesn't mean he's not irrational. He was. That's what the whole narrative is supposed to suggest. You're asking something from fleshlings that only God can reveal. So what happens? His plans are frustrated. But they aren't. His, his fear and his anxiety is not alleviated. It's frustrated, but not alleviated. And so on the heels of step one through four, what happens? Step five, outburst, rage. Rage, fury, it's a particular expression of anger that is distinct from something like bitterness. It can be very loud. It can be silent as the grave and just pure action. But you know what rage says? Here's what rage says that something like bitterness does not. Rage says, I am taking back control. I am taking back control. I feel like I have lost control. I feel unsettled and insecure. I've been told that what I'm asking isn't even reasonable. Then my plans have been frustrated. I am taking back control. I will show you my power and I will be respected. Kill them all. That's what he says. And that is why people feel so strong in intense anger. So strong in intense anger. They are reasserting their control and their agency that they feel has been lost in the circumstances. And of course, the sad reality is that people will often change their tune around such a person and comply when someone is enraged or outbursting, but it's not because they think the person is powerful. It's because the person is emotionally drunk and dangerous. And you know what they do? They make sinful choices, they'll ruin your evening. They'll ruin your vacation. At that point, they don't care. They're done. They are emotionally drunk. 
Kill them all is Nebuchadnezzar's version. Could be screaming until you cry. Could be someone going to prison. Once someone gets to a certain point, rage. Assume the worst, crave further knowledge, hope and planning, frustration without alleviation, outburst rage, sinful choices. I wish I could say this is just an isolated pattern that we see here, but it's not. This is a prototypical pattern for how such things often advance. Is there anything wrong with being frustrated? Of course not. Is there anything wrong with wanting more information? Of course not. But there's a better way. There's a better way than this. It's something that fearful people are not going to learn overnight. But that way is trusting in the Lord on one hand, wed to wisdom and inaction. Daniel doesn't have a passive plan either, you'll notice. But his trust isn't in his contingency planning. And his trust is not in understanding. In fact, he's praying that God would reveal the mystery, and he prays to his friends, would, would you please pray that God is merciful concerning this? I trust in God, wed to wise action. And instead, in contrast to Nebuchadnezzar again, he takes this incredibly different course of action that leads down a different path, and it will lead us down a different path as well. Christ has come. Christ has come to take on flesh to be a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. We don't have to know the shape of the staircase and how many steps are in it to take the next step. God will provide special grace for the next day. Not the same grace. There's not generic grace. There's no such thing as generic grace for you. There's grace for today and then God meets you the next day. Day and provides grace for that day. He's shown us His goodness and His wisdom and His power in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We really believe those things. We take those things to heart. We make sure that God's priorities are our priorities, which often they are not. That His desires for our life are our desires for our own life. That fear will not have a commanding place in our lives. We do not have to have godlike abilities to cope with our fear, understood as I have defined it in this text. God has provided another solution. If only we will do the due diligence to take our thoughts captive and not make excuses. If we will take our thoughts captive, act in wisdom, act, yes. Find out things, act. But put your trust in the right place. Take your thoughts captive and don't make excuses. There is a God ready to forgive people who constantly struggle with doubting His goodness, doubting His plan, questioning His character. First thing, we see this in Nebuchadnezzar, we see this in ourselves, the progress of fear and worry. Finally, the God who knows. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He knows your every thought, every single one of them. He knows your future and your past and the number of hairs on your head. And in conjunction with His goodness and power, 
expressed in the person and work of Jesus, a few things followed from that. A few things followed from that. First, that for those in Christ, nothing that you can do will make God love you more or less. Nothing you can do. He doesn't become less committed to you when you don't read your Bible or forget to pray or something like that. You don't become anything less than a blood-bought child because you snapped at your kids or were rude or disrespectful to your spouse. He knows your past, your present, your future, and He sees you united to His Son and says, You're mine, and I love you. You're mine, and I love you. And I have compassion even as I expect holiness. I have compassion even as I expect holiness. And you cannot out my grace because you're not that strong. You cannot out my grace. And I know that because I'm God. That's what he's saying. That's what God is saying. And that leads to the second thing. We can't ever surprise God. God is never surprised. Maybe if God was caught off guard by something you and I could do down the road... I mean, imagine if that were the case. That might be truly terrifying. Be truly terrifying for me, at least. But mercifully, we can say that nothing will ever surprise God because He is the God who knows. He's never surprised. He's never surprised by anything that will happen to you or has happened to you. And I understand that that might be a difficult word for some people. Some people have certain things in their pasts, certain... People will have certain things in their future. God knows about them 100%. He is sovereign over them. And sometimes that might be unsettling. But let me ask you this. Would you rather place your life in the hands of a good, wise, powerful God whose ways we don't understand? Or a God whose ways we do understand, but He's just not powerful enough or good enough or wise enough to get it done? I'm choosing the first option. If I, can, if I can know that God is good, and I can know that God is wise, and I can know that God is all-powerful, I don't have to look at this tragedy and be able to understand how it fits in the grand scheme of redemptive history. I can grieve without craving knowledge and asking why and desperately trying to create a silver lining to give it meaning. Because sometimes you're just grasping at straws to make yourself feel better. Sometimes we just don't know why things happen. I'm sorry. Sometimes we just don't know. Outside of large theological things like to the glory of God, which is not helpful in those times, by the way. Finally, because God knows all, nothing is ever truly private. There's no such thing as something that is totally private. God knows your thoughts more clearly than if they showed up in 4K on these monitors. God knows the intention of your hearts, even when you try to tell little stories and lies in your heart to make yourself feel better about the course of action you're taking, your mixed motivation, whatever the case may be. He knows desires of your heart that you've never uttered out loud to a single soul ever and may never do. And because nothing is ever truly private, nothing is ever exempt from consequences. Positive and negative. A man will reap what he sows. 
We will soon see this even in the book of Daniel. Thinking about your own success and standing in the wrong way is going to have some really bad consequences for Nebuchadnezzar. Just how he thinks about his, his own position is going to have some devastating consequences. He's the God who knows. And so simultaneously, let's be people who think about what Paul says is good and true and noble and pure and lovely. And when we don't, and when our motives are selfish and our desires are sinful, let's run to a high priest king who promises to meet us with grace sufficient to cover and restore no matter what he's done. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and we worship him together. Let's pray. God, we stand in awe of who you are, how you have worked, how you have promised to continue working. We pray that you would help us take a candid look at our own hearts and our own lives in light of these truths. Would you help us to be people who Take ownership of our sin. You give us clear minds and good friends to help in that task. So we seek to blame things on situations and circumstances and everything else. Or help us acknowledge the incredible influence of all those things. But to own our sin and take it to the cross. To a Christ who has come and died and has risen again. Who is a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. Lord, thank you for your knowledge. Surpasses all understanding. Pray that that would sanctify us. We pray that our understanding of your knowledge would spur us on towards holiness. That it would comfort our hearts and our souls. Pray that you administer to us as we see these tokens of your sacrifice, this blood, this bread, this body, this flesh, and the Lord's Supper. That you would do business with our hearts where it needs to be done. And that, that we would look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb in so doing. Give us joy.